Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. You can subscribe and stream The Groundless Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, and YouTube. And of course, find out more at groundlessground.com. This is a very special and quite different kind of episode to finish out The Groundless Ground's fifth season. Donna Sherman, a clinical social worker and teacher of practical wisdom from yoga sciences, mindfulness meditation, and behavioral sciences, and I interview each other about yogic and Buddhist meditative practices and how they are translated and delivered in health contexts. Because Donna studied extensively in the tantric yoga tradition, her therapeutic yoga nidra is the NSDR, non-sleep deep rest practice I refer to my patients. And Donna is also a longtime dear friend and colleague from whom I've learned so much. It's hard to imagine a good life without her along for the ride. And wow, five years and 60 episodes, what an adventure Groundless Ground has been. Much gratitude to every single listener. You continue to be my greatest inspiration. Best wishes for the holidays, and a very happy and healthy new year. Here I am with Lisa Dale Miller, who happens to be a dear friend and also a colleague. We have a long history and I'm very happy to have this conversation with you. A little bit about Lisa. Lisa's a private practice psychotherapist in California, and she specializes in Buddhist psychology. She's a certified somatic experiencing practitioner. And Lisa has been a dedicated yogic and Buddhist meditation practitioner for a long time. She has a lot of clinical experience, a lot of practice experience. What is also noteworthy is that when we met many years ago, we didn't know each other. We were both invited to create a women's empowerment workshop in Lambertville, New Jersey. Didn't know each other, got in touch. You showed up at my house. My then three-year-old daughter was toddlering around and we sat down and we created a program. And I remember thinking, hmm, this could be a good friendship. Here's why I wanted us to have a conversation today. For many years, you and I have had rich conversations about the joys, the frustrations, the trends, and occasionally the overhyped methods and practices that get presented as cures or cure-alls. We live in a culture whereby we're being told that we can hack, leverage, optimize our health and mental health with knowledge, science, facts, and protocols. While there is indeed quite a bit of truth to the fact that knowledge is powerful and we can use science and evidence-based facts in very targeted ways, I have had this increasing concern that a culture that utilizes knowledge without wisdom is missing an integral and essential piece of healing and health of all kinds. Furthermore, you and I were talking on the phone a few weeks ago, there's kind of a distinct feminine principle I'm feeling is getting lost in the conversation and is getting lost in the presentation of mental health. Because you're an integrative psychotherapist and you're a practitioner of Buddhist and yogic practices since you're 14, 15? About then. I want to hear from you about how you marry your knowledge of science, you know, the nervous system, clinical issues, with your deep understanding of the subtleties and nuances and wisdom that infuses physical, psychological, and dare I say, even spiritual growth. I'd like to start with this question. Before you ask me your question, I think we need to give context to the Groundless Ground listeners, because they don't know much about you. It is true you were a clinician long before I was one. During your time as a clinician, you started studying with what I would say is a rare teacher in the West, tantric yogic 
teacher who comes from a family lineage. Her name was Kiran Mishra. You and I are having a conversation today as equals, as experts in very specific marriages of the Eastern prajna or wisdom traditions and the Western psychological traditions, which you have married for many, many years. You became an MBSR teacher five, six years before I became an MBSR teacher. You know, you preceded me in a lot of the integration of these methods. Besides being just an incredible human, your <laughs> Yoga Nidra CD is the Yoga Nidra practice that I refer my patients to. It's the only one because it is a therapeutic yoga nidra and it actually delivers what yoga nidra is supposed to do. Do you want to add anything to that description of you? <laughs> I will add something that is both, both nostalgic and funny. I was cleaning out a pile of papers and I came across the sign for my door that I had up starting in the 90s. Donna Sherman, MSW, LCSW, underneath it, it says integrative psychotherapist. Now, the reason this matters is that when I started using that term, I got a lot of questions from clients and other colleagues because they probably made a lot of woo-woo assumptions about it. I knew we were sitting down and doing talk therapy, but also process-oriented therapy, which was a little bit Jungian and gestalt a little bit based on asking people not to discuss emotion solely, but to feel it in the body, to begin to have more oriented, somatic, sensory grounded experiences. I remember speaking to it, another friend who's a psychologist, she said, don't put the word integrative psychotherapist on your card. Don't put it on your door sign. Don't put it on the outside of the building. And I love this woman and she's wonderful and brilliant. It felt like I would be apologizing by not. And I needed you to see this sign because we are here together, two women who have shared so much of our personal and professional journeys together, for lack of better term. And we've never shied away from having differences of opinion. And we've also never shied away from talking about some of the things we found problematic in our field. Hence, this conversation. I was just blown away. I had no idea that you named your practice integrative psychotherapy. It actually means something in the field now because they're integrative physicians. Nobody's using complementary medicine anymore. That's one thing that's happened clearly in 20 years is there's some common language for the integration of science from many traditions, uh -huh. which I'm sure we're going to talk about. I think you got inspired to do this after you started listening to Andrew Huberman's podcast on meditation and you sent me a text. Yeah. You asked a super huge question. I mean, that is the question you and I could talk about for 10 hours. But to pare down the question, was there anything in particular that struck you as either inaccurate or looking through a lens that didn't make any sense to you that he offered in his understanding of the benefits of meditation. I believe Andrew Huberman is doing great work in the world. They talk about democratizing science. I think he's doing a great service. Towards the beginning of the podcast, there was the term better meditator. There was a tone of, once again, how to perhaps optimize the meditation experience. And at this point, I've listened to 75% of it. So I can't speak to 100% of it. There is nothing discussed about the nuances of an emotional life, of wisdom, of skillful means, of really the deeper underpinnings and the wider context. I was recognizing in me, I'm feeling so much more and more, as I said at the very beginning, we're so on the ready 
to hack, to optimize, to dive in, to kind of master ourselves, which I'm simplifying here, but that's the antithesis of what practice is about. It's like picking the, the branches and the leaves and ignoring that grand, glorious trunk and root. So I wasn't expecting to get any of that because it's not his milieu, as you've said. He's a phenomenal science communicator, and he's extremely interested in performance of all kinds. I would say pretty much most of his episodes are about optimization and optimizing performance. Meditation as a performative act is problematic in the traditions from which meditation comes from. The Buddhist tradition, certainly, even the historical Buddha had many, many suttas where he guards against straining and striving. Striving is something that if you're a Buddhist practitioner, there's this lovely fine line between effort and striving. Also in the yogic tradition, there's a term called bhavana. Do you know this term bhavana? It's a Sanskrit word, and it basically means all the things we do to wake up. That's bhavana, including the desire to wake up. And of course, if you misunderstand the Buddhist teachings, you would say, well, you're not supposed to have any desires. Well, that's not actually true. Desire is not the problem. The problem is clinging to outcome and very specific ideas about it. So meditation in these beautiful traditions, including the Upanishadic and the Vedic and the Sankhya tradition, there's always this weird, strange wanting to not take birth in the effort to wake up and wake up because the self will take everything as itself. And this is the problem. So I never expected the Huberman podcast to come at meditation and anything other than performance. And he did a fantastic job of that. So he talked about an interoceptive dissociative continuum, which I listened to two or three times because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't misunderstanding and I wasn't misunderstanding. <laughs> the idea of dissociation having anything to do with interoception is deeply odd if you add in autonomic nervous system functioning in your conversation. If you're only going to have a brain-centered conversation, okay, no problem. Yes, absolutely. The jhanas are a good example of meditative states in which the object of the practice is to shut everything down except for brainstem and thalamic functioning. And at that point, you don't really experience anything outside your body. There's no world left. There's no body left. It's literally just this complete one-pointed awareness on awareness itself. And that's all there is. This is something even the Buddha was prescribing in many of the suttas, because this is one of the big practices of the time to get samadhi, to get that concentrated state. That is definitely dissociation. But when we talk about dissociation, clinically, we are actually talking about a lack of embodied presencing in your life. And he didn't really talk about embodiment at all in this episode. And the other thing I wanted to mention was he equated equanimity with narrative distancing from your experience. I don't know so much in the yogic tradition. In the Buddhist tradition, equanimity is a very powerful state. It's something that ideally should become a trait in the mind. And real equanimity has nothing to do with leaving experience or distancing from experience or even observing experience. It is an ability for affective and cognitive flexibility such that no matter what is arising, mind is able to dynamically respond ethically and skillfully to whatever it is arising without creating harm or perturbation. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. This is completely missed in general, even in the teaching of mindfulness-based yeah. interventions. 
That's interesting. I feel like what you just described in terms of dynamically responding skillfully is grace. And that's that subtlety. And all that can happen in nanoseconds. As you say, it is a dynamic process. It's not separating from any narrative, from any felt somatic experience. And that is the piece that unless one has spent a fair amount of time with practices, don't know that it can get communicated. And that I think is part of what drives my concern with not wanting to feed this compartmentalized, almost a little mechanistic understanding of practice. You could say almost, but I'm just gonna basically say, get rid of the almost all those instances, because that's exactly what it is. It's literally just meditation as performance. And the performance in the medical world, and even in the psychological world, is all about antidote, yeah. all about fixing. Fixing is not the goal in wisdom traditions. Comprehension, clarity, open-heartedness, and capacity for presencing this is the outcome. Right. Not even the mitigation of suffering, the lessening of suffering, perhaps, right? Our practices help us suffer less because we can recognize the second arts when we're feeding the suffering, but it's not about mitigating it. Being human means a spectrum of so much experience and any overemphasis on the performative element of it is missing the whole thing. When you and I were talking on the phone, I kept saying to you, like, it feels like there's this feminine principle that is lost in all of this. And yeah, we can ascribe it to a wisdom that comes from a more yin element. I want to hear what you think about a feminine principle. It could be, I just want more women to be out there, more wise women, older women, practiced women, seasoned women out there talking about all of this. This is difficult for me. When we met way back in the 80s, back then I was so deeply steeped in what at the time was a scholarly tradition of women feminist scholars looking back at Paleolithic, Neolithic, medieval cultures and images to try to find what kind of spirituality existed that included the female form. Uh -huh. And of course, what they found was that almost all of the Paleolithic cultures and many of the early Neolithic cultures were worshiping a goddess, particularly a triple goddess in all kinds of forms. It didn't matter where on the globe because the mysteries of human experience were birth and nurturing, and then death. And the female form represented all of them. Back in those days when, you know, you and I did the women's empowerment workshop, I was so committed to telling this history everywhere so that people understood that the religious traditions we have are not reflective of essentially the way humans lived up until 5,000, 4,000, something like that. For me to say that the feminine is missing, I guess at this point in my life, it doesn't feel integrated because prajna or wisdom is not male or female. And there are certainly more than enough modern professional women who are coming at all of this in exactly the same way that men are coming at it, because that's how you do well in the world. I can't really say that the feminine is missing. I could say that there is a deep connectedness that is utterly missing. And if people feel comfortable saying that that's a feminine principle, okay, fine. But for me, it's a human principle. It's not male. It's not female. It's an integration of relationship with the world and with each other and all those species that is missing. 
but that's largely due to the Judeo-Christian view of what humans are, which is the master and everything else is like stupid nature. It's just an outcome of that. So that's interesting. And I still come back to the term wisdom and grace, that the wisdom that all these practices, and they're in the Judeo-Christian as well, they're everywhere. The wisdom aspect of all of it, which is also a grace-filled aspect, is what I want to keep bringing into light. I even struggle with me calling it a feminine principle as I kind of wrestle with this inside of myself. What do I really mean? The sacred feminine? No, I don't really mean that. It's a wisdom and grace because I think of a Venn diagram and the two intersecting circles, you know, and one is knowledge and one is wisdom. And then where they meet is grace, wisdom, and skillful means. Maybe what would be helpful is, yeah, this is going to be an antidote, right? I think what I'm most interested in what both of us do, your yoga nidra is so effective in a medical way because you straddle both the psychological, clinical view of what the nervous system does when it goes into deep rest state during yoga nidra as well as the deep, intense, rich wisdom tradition of tantric yoga that it comes from and that you were trained in. So I thought what I would do is read a quick paragraph that would describe many of the things Huberman described in his podcast as meditation, but doing it from the wisdom tradition perspective, the science of meditation from the old traditions. Oh, let's hear it, please. Okay. Meditation is when the mind flows on the object of thought without any interruption, like the smooth and even flow of oil or honey in an uninterrupted stream. Concentration is more like the uneven trickle of water that flows in a series of distinct droplets, each one similar, but interrupted by gaps. One-pointed awareness is fixing the mind on one place. When mind becomes fully absorbed in the object of meditation, it loses all notions of self as a self-conscious reflective mind. This is samadhi. In this state, the mind is no longer aware of itself as meditating on something external to itself. In Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, liberation equates to comprehending all objects and all conditions of the world simultaneously. The ultimate goal of yoga, or more specifically, the practice of samyama, is this comprehending all objects and all conditions of the world simultaneously. The samyamas are but semblances of the ultimate samyama. The term is nirbija samadhi, which means seedless samadhi, nothing to grasp onto, the independence that comes from the clear lucidity of mind. An amazing example, actually, from Bodhidharma, he says, this mind is without beginning and has never varied. It has never lived or died, appeared or disappeared, increased or decreased. It's not pure or impure, good or evil, past or future. It's not true or false. It's not male or female. It strives for no realization and suffers nothing. It has no strength or form. It's like space. You can't possess it. You can't lose it. Its movements can't be blocked by mountains, rivers, or rock walls. There's a lot there. In essence, the first paragraph is the training, what we undergo as meditators in order to strip everything away and have the experience of this utterly empty, lucid clarity 
which is beyond all objects of perception. And yet all objects of perception arise within it. This is the thing that's missing. That beautiful description would and could seem so incomprehensible if one doesn't have experience with practice. So if you were to be in front of a room of people who wanted to learn what this meditation thing is about, and you were to share those beautiful words, my question is, how does one create an entree, a gateway of experience, an experience of practice that is an appropriate doorway and first step without being a false cure? So I wouldn't share any of that. What I would do is I would ask people when they were kids, did they ever lie down in the grass and gaze at the sky mm -hmm. and what that was like? And pretty much every kid has lain down in the grass and gazed at the sky. Yeah. And then what I would do is I would equate that experience that all kids have. When you gaze at the sky, you just get lost in this expanse and it's space and there's no end. And every once in a while, a cloud comes by. And this is the nature of mind. It is a lucid, infinite expanse, just like the sky. And in fact, in the Dzogchen tradition, sky gazing is a very well-schooled practice. But every kid can do it. And what I love is the way Minja Rinpoche does this. When he teaches Joy of Living One, he literally is teaching them the highest Ati Yoga Tantra, but they have no idea he's doing it. He's just basically saying things like this. Can you hear my voice? That's awareness. And so that is the way meditation should, I think, be introduced. You've already had this experience, even though you don't know it. You have the experience of the innate lucidity of mind every moment, and yet you just don't recognize. There's many things a person can train mind to do. You could get very good at meditation gymnastics, but in the end, they're all meditative habits. And all of the great teachers, all of them in every tradition, they will all say, you will end up mistaking the things you can do with mind for wisdom. Exactly. I think of the whole idea of the wise fool, mm -hmm. the person who embodies enormous wisdom. M many people wouldn't know it. And they might purposely act a little foolish to teach crazy wisdom. If we just stop making all of this teaching and these practices big deals, approach them quietly with beginner's mind, humbly, with curiosity, with a little wonder, with a little laughter. There's a lot of lightness to a lot of this too. The ego likes to take everything as its own and make something very big out of it. When you're talking about wanting to introduce the feminine principle, the receptive, I think that's what you're essentially pointing at. Taking meditation as something you get good at is completely wrongheaded. This is not what meditation is. Anytime you go to real Buddhist teachers and you tell them about this amazing experience you had, you're always going to get the same answer. Okay, well, just go back to practicing. <laughs> <laughs> Not a big deal, and yet it's so impactful. You know, the chapter on the cities in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. You want to say what the cities are? They were documented and written down in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, but of I don't think there's a single religious tradition that doesn't have some story about someone flying through the air, walking on water, or Jesus walked on water and created bread, and lots of the Kabbalic masters also did these things. Yogis throughout India, as well as in all the Buddhist traditions. And so what they are is a way of directing mind to have thought at a level of thought at which they say the laws of nature essentially manifest. So if you have a thought, 
at that very subtle level of existence. The material forms will just organize themselves so that it spontaneously happens. They're called supernatural powers, but if you see them in that way, there's nothing supernatural about them. It's literally just relationship of mind, thought, and existence at a level at which thought can be manifested. The cities are these very short sutras. They're like little scientific formulas. It's to how you practice them. That's the samyama. The mind is very directed in a particular way. So if you see them as just skills, they can actually be very useful for cultivating meditative capacity. But beyond that, that being anything that shows realization of any kind, awakening of any kind, they don't show that at all, really, except the ego gets lost in them and takes them as realization. They are, in the Tibetan tradition, the word is nyam, and it means meditative experience. Mm. So pretty much everything is meditative experience until you have actual realization, which definitely changes the entire organism. Realization changes the subtle body nervous system, it changes the mind, and it changes the way a human relates to all other beings. And that was missing in the podcast, uh -huh. the capacity to fully and completely be in the human realm in a non-harming way, which has always been the goal of all of the yogic practices, all of the Buddhist practices, ahimsa, non-harming. And mm -hmm. that is the way to literally make it so that suffering is not being created. The basic pain of life will still be there, but there won't be mentally generated suffering. Mm -hmm. As a clinician, we prescribe meditative practices to help individuals lessen obsessive, compulsive narration of experience and fully land in experience as it actually is in real time, mm -hmm. which for lots of neurobiologic reasons, just spontaneously shuts off that narrative. When a person is trained in mindfulness meditation practices properly, the obsession with internal critique and negative thinking, that really begins to fall away and not just during the meditation, but it begins to fall away in life. I know you see this with mindfulness meditation classes that you teach. Yeah. Mindful awareness, when attention falls into that ruminative, I, me, mine, getting into the story and just that moment of recognition when we can see, oh, I just went there suddenly I'm back. I wanted to bring up something else. When I read one of your blog posts, Therapist is Provocateur, I was really happy and relieved to read that piece because those of us in the field know that essentially we're not there just to be kind and nice. Hopefully there's natural compassion and kindness in who we are as humans when we're sitting with our clients. It's not about highlighting our clients' innate goodness and possibilities and potentials. Sometimes we got to ask some really tough questions or make a really sharp observation, hopefully very skillfully. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about what prompted you to write this. I have had blogs before. But I really haven't been writing, mostly because I've been doing the Groundless Ground podcast for five years. And when I redesigned my website about a month ago, I thought I really miss documenting what I'm actually doing in the room with patients. Because people tell me what I'm doing is really different. So I decided to start blogging about all kinds of things that come up in my practice of integrative psychotherapy. When patients first come to see me, they will often describe they've done therapy before, didn't really do anything, or they've done very specific thing, but it didn't really change what they wanted to change. I can't tell you how often I hear this. They'll say, I'm not really sure that I want somebody who's just say, 
uh-huh how did you feel about that and I've never been that kind of therapist ubiquitous therapist uh-huh uh-huh Lisa I have to tell you when I had my practice I heard that same thing please don't just uh-huh me psychotherapeutic professionals don't know how to stand on the growing edge with a patient and not be lazy psychotherapeutic professionals just want people to feel better and to me this is lazy feeling better is not the objective capacity flexibility understanding recognition presence skillfulness having more energy being able to feel more tranquility these are the things that help people have a real life not i feel good because i feel good is not something you can count on mental health is not about i feel good this creates a kind of therapy that is essentially just making the person feel good and there's very little risk for a therapist who does that for me when someone comes in to do a body of psychotherapeutic work they want to be relieved of something that is a problem that's an obstacle the only way for people to put something down is to see it the way it actually is it gets put down because it just doesn't have any reason to be there anymore there's no affective stickiness there's no charge there's resolution that's literally like having a diamond sword in your hand and slicing through your own crap that's what therapy really looks like to me and that can be done with a lot of gentleness and firmness and it's only to allow them to really see to really hear to stand clearly firmly in the presence of their bullshit yeah and the world's bullshit frankly i like what you said about there's no risk doing the aha aha feel good fix it game being a effective therapist does involve some risk because there are times you're going to wield the diamond edge sword of insight and truth and the other thing you said about being gentle and firm I resonate with so much and it reminds me of the tradition of thinking about having just for anybody it doesn't relate to being a therapist a practitioner just being a, a human being on this planet of living in our lives with a firm spine on a physical level and showing up for life with our collarbones open and our heart open and our back strong yet keeping the front soft to be an effective therapist you're doing both you're sitting with your patients with a strong spine with a very open and soft heart that kind of fearlessness and ability to ask the provocative questions or question the narratives help midwife somebody into a place of discomfort so they can experience this discomfort and its growing edge that's wielding the sword I remember are talking about practice that our mind would become more diamond-like adamantine mind in Sanskrit it's vajra a thunderbolt the zen tradition uses adamantine a lot it has a clarity a sharpness and a purity the historical buddha didn't really use terms like that very much interestingly uh. he was interested in impermanence the basic unsatisfactoriness of all experience and our misperception that there's some self inside and the rest of the world is outside like that's pretty much what he was interested in having people recognize and work with so i'm feeling the need to take a quiet minute just to sit for just a minute i would love to invite listeners of sparks in action and groundless ground to join us and if you're driving and listening to this allow yourself to just land in seeing and feeling the steering wheel you don't need to leave to be quiet yes bring yourself to an upright comfortable seated position feel your 
firm spine, yet soft as it receives breath in and out. And I'll simply ring a bell. We'll be silent for a minute, and then you'll hear the bell again. Well, that was very nice. Thank you. I would like you to describe the difference between yoga nidra and meditation, why they are different and what yoga nidra specifically is. Yoga nidra is not the steps leading up to it. So people sometimes confuse it but yoga nidra is actually a state, whereas the steps leading up to it done in a particular way, but not necessarily a rigid way, are what help usher people into the yoga nidra state. And nidra implies a kind of deep, deep resting state, a state in which our physical body is supremely relaxed. Imagine you've got a weighted blanket and that weighted blanket is on you and it's just like gravity encouraging the muscles to relax and ushering in that parasympathetic response in the body. It's not meditation at all. With yoga nidra, there's a sort of systematic way of helping to encourage this state to happen. These are innate states that we just have within us, but the nidra steps and the way of practicing yoga nidra, the person who is guiding you in yoga nidra is going to be following. They're not protocols with a capital P, but there's particular things you need to do to encourage this state. And one of the most elemental ones, which is a very somatic, is called rotation of consciousness. After some sweeping breath work and after some other practices, as you, the receiver, are lying down or reclining, my voice is directing you to different parts of the body. And you don't need to move the body and you are not trying to relax. You are simply placing your awareness around your body. That's called rotation of consciousness. In doing that, we tend to drop so deeply into it, not in a discursive analytical sense. We're moving too quickly for that. We're just becoming deeply embodied. And with respect to the mind, how the mind becomes so quiet and still as it does in a nidra practice is still a mystery to me. I theorize, Lisa, that when practicing yoga nidra, you're lying down flat, right? You're working with gravity and or you're reclining. You're in a state of effortlessness. And I believe that because we encourage that deep somatic restoration and rest towards the beginning of the practice, it helps the mind clean itself out. And we're not trying hard to make anything happen. And that's why I always say to people, don't try to relax and don't worry. Some practitioners keep emphasizing we are practicing yoga nidra, we are not sleeping. I don't do that anymore. Years ago, I did do that to encourage that deeply quiet, awakened state. But now my feeling about it is, is if somebody falls into what we would call a sleep sleep, snoring and all, let them be. The nervous system is going where it needs to go. I feel like it speaks to a very, very integrated intelligence that we have within us. 
whereby the nervous system and the mind just downregulate. But what's different about yoga, nidra, and sleep is that very often a nap will leave a person feeling kind of groggy because they've gone into stages of sleep. Nidra is like completely different. Most people come out of a yoga nidra experience with a very clean, clear, quiet mind. This is partly because the practice itself does something similar to sleep yoga practices. It is a low dorsal state that when we sleep, we're unconscious and the body does all its housekeeping, cellular repair, consolidating memory, all that stuff while we are unconscious. But awareness is still there. Sleep yoga cultivates the capacity to remain awake and aware in that basic ground of consciousness, mind's innate clarity is still apparent to mind, even though the body is asleep. I think yoga nidra has a series of practices that allow a person to have the wakefulness while the body is literally in low dorsal. Mm -hmm. There's no discursive thought. What's so interesting is that the awareness of mind is not necessarily temporal. It's not a cognizance of I'm having this particular awareness. It's so integrated. It's a little bit like how you were describing samadhi. Well, thank you. That was a comprehensive answer. And I think it's important for people to know why we would prescribe this clinically. It's extremely good for people who may be going through a period where their sleep is not very good because sleep apnea or uh, women in menopause often experience periods where there's sleeplessness, people who have thyroid disorders that aren't medicated well enough often have sleep disturbance. Then there's just the everyday, you're going through a really difficult period in your life and you might be using your nighttime to work out your problems. Obviously it isn't a replacement for sleep, You've used yoga nidra in this way for many years as you are a thyroid cancer survivor. Yeah, and you're right. It is not a replacement for sleep. Good sleep is essential. I like to say to people, don't believe me, do it for yourself. Just do it and you'll have your own experience. I was practicing yoga nidra when I was introduced to it by Kieran in the late 90s, and it became just a mainstay of of my life for a variety of reasons. And it was instrumental while I was going through thyroid cancer. And then when you don't have a thyroid gland, you live with an enormous amount of dysregulation from sleep to regulating temperature, appetite, circadian challenges, endocrine challenges. Yoga Nidra has been pivotal in my personal health. What happened with this particular recording, which is old now, but after five years of being cancer-free, I made a vow to myself that at my five-year mark, I was going to make a yoga ninja recording. If people want to find that recording and also take advantage of some of the classes that you're giving, how do people find you? People can find me very easily at DonnaLSherman.com. They can just contact me there. I answer all emails and I'm always happy to talk with people. I also have some recordings on Sparks in Action. You can visit the Sparks in Action website. And I want to turn that around, Lisa. You wrote a book that I recommend to all my students, Effortless Mindfulness, Genuine Mental Health Through Awakened Presence. And I am going to embarrass you and read a paragraph written by You will find that the author's scholarship and many years of meditation practice are reflected on every page. It is intellectually satisfying and also serves as a rich contemplative guide for mindfulness meditation and Buddhism in general, no matter what your background might be as a scholar, a meditator, a seeker, or clinician you will find many valuable insights in this work. It is such a joy to see Lisa's gift in presenting many essential Buddhist thoughts in contemporary language and making them come alive. 
Well, that was very generous. And now I will give reality. This is a dense, that's the word I usually hear, scholarly, clinical textbook on Buddhist psychology and its application for mental health professionals. So I don't usually recommend that my patients read it, although I know people do. My patients don't need to read it because they have me and <laughs> they get the experience directly in the room. And so there isn't really any reason for them to read it. On the other hand, if you are a clinician and you're listening to this, I felt it was my responsibility to give the actual practices and the history, all of the clinical meditation practices that some of you may be delivering actually come from. The book literally is an effort to fill in the gaps, to give this information yeah. and to teach these practices in a way that has more substance so that a clinician actually knows what they're doing uh -huh. rather than just following some script that they got on some weekend mindfulness training. Yeah. I want you to tell my listeners how they can find you. Anything anybody wants to know about me, they can find on my website, which is just my name, lisadalemiller.com. So it's all there. Baron, do you want to say something about your podcast, Groundless Ground? Everybody wanted me to write another book and I didn't want to. I just wanted to talk to all these amazing people that I had known for years in contemplative neuroscience and integrative medicine. This episode will finish off the fifth season of the Groundless Ground podcast. And it, it really has been in, uh, such an honor and a great experience to do a podcast. And mm. I was very happy when you decided to dip your toe in and do a podcast. Everybody should take a look at the Sparks and Ashton podcast. Thank you so much for this conversation. This was great. I'm so glad we did this. Thank you so much for taking this time. It was a wonderful conversation. Hard to believe we've known each other this long and we haven't done this. I'm certainly glad we got to do it. You're doing great work in the world. You too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.